0: Are y'all doing well? Happy Spring Break! Shouldn't we all be in Mexico though? What do what are we do? It's snow outside. Come on! It's really, really good to be together with every one of you today. Especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the first time. It's our privilege to be with you. I want to say a profound thanks and a hearty way to go to Derry Long and Peter Holmes and Susan Williams and Chris Townley for leading in these weekend worship gatherings so well. Over the past three weeks, every single one of those people is very dear to me. I love serving God with them alongside all of you, and it's just true. We're, we're really privileged to have people of that caliber on our team with us, aren't we? If you weren't around or you missed uh, the weekend worship gathering February 20 and 21, Derry Long, who is our chief strategy officer around here, he talked about our family's upcoming research and enrichment leave, and if you miss that weekend worship gathering, would you please hit the podcast or the web or the old fashioned way, pick up a CD on your way out and listen into that? Why am I asking you to do that? Because it's a really defining word on the what and the why and the how of the next several months around here regarding my role, my leadership, and our church family's overall development. And strategically, fundamentally, one of the strategies and purposes of that research and enrichment leave for the entire congregation, for the whole Journey Church family, is around this concept of ownership, the concept of ownership. We are a fantastic community when it comes to participation, right? We've got people participating all over the place in all kinds of ways, but when it comes to ownership, honestly, we're earning a very strong C minus, maybe even D plus, And folks, honestly, we must improve our ownership factor if we ever hope to reach our full redemptive potential as a church in our community. That means that we must be mobilized as a community of Christ followers on mission reaching people who are far from God, growing them up in Christ, far, far beyond just the P level, far, far beyond just the participation level. That means a much deeper level of engagement, a much deeper level of ownership on the part of every single one of us, myself included in that. And one of the ways that we examine our ownership factor of our church is through the lens of giving, financial giving. At the moment, I must tell you that our general fund picture, meaning the funding stream of our day-to-day ministries, is not great. We are not doing well. I have sitting on my desk right now a series of very hard financial decisions related to our ministries that I'm going to have to make hard calls on in the coming days. Now honestly, I do not want to shelve ministries that are meeting real spiritual needs simply for a lack of funding. None of us wants that, but it's the moment we're in unless we can together as a family facilitate a quite dramatic turnaround. I know we are in a recession. I know that many of our personal incomes have plunged. Many of them have become flat non-existent as a result of this economic situation. And you must know that we are not in any way in a spiritual recession. Journey Church is serving more people than ever before through every single one of our ministries. And we're doing it on a decreasing financial support base. But that can't continue. It is not sustainable. So here's the challenge for us. Here's what I'm asking of us as a community. Would you and Jesus please very carefully examine what exactly your ownership stake is in your church related to your own personal financial giving? I perceive, quite honestly, that there is an attitude that hangs around our church that says, someone else will attend to that. Whether it's serving in some vital capacity or whether it's giving generously to God's work. There's this thought process that pervades around here that says somebody else will take care of that. But with that mindset, with that attitude, comes the realities that ministries that serve you, ministries that serve your family, ministries that serve your neighbors, ministries that are intended to reach your friends and family who are living life far from God cannot and will not continue. Someone else will give so that that will continue to happen is an unsustainable and actually unbiblical model. The full redemptive potential of our church will and cannot be achieved without every single one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, moving from being participants to being owners in every single sense, including financial. The kingdom of God, I promise you, will not be nearly as present in the valley as God would have it be when many, many, many of us are taking a pass on giving to God's work and trusting that someone else, the person sitting next to us, the person sitting over there, will just pick up the responsibility. It cannot and will not happen without every single one of us. I want you to know that in the coming weeks, I will be making contact with a whole bunch of you across the life of our church for the purpose of inviting and challenging you to add a total of about $100,000 in new giving to our general fund between now and the end of August. That means an additional roughly $20,000 a month or so over and above where we are right now. If we will, every one of us, examine our financial ownership stake in the life of our church, if we'll respond simply according to God's leading as well as adding that additional, by adding that additional hundred grand to our general fund between now and the end of our ministry year, we'll be in great shape. We'll continue to impact our valley for Christ full steam ahead. Now, I know that is not necessarily a fun thing to hear about, so thank you for your attention on that matter. It is very, very serious. Thank you in advance for stepping up and for being such a generous community, all for the purpose of lives being touched and changed and transformed through the ministries of our church here together. Grab a Bible if you've got one with you and uh, just sort of hang on to it. We're going to start a new series today that will take us all the way up through Easter. It's a series that we call Finale, and we're calling it Finale because we're going to take a look at the events of Christ's final week of life as he had known it for the previous 33 years or so, you know the story, don't you? Jesus was born in a stable. He had grown up in the home of a carpenter. He gathered this sort of ragtag bunch of disciples, his closest followers. He began his public ministry. He ministered to groups large and small. And then all of that activity culminated in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection, which we'll celebrate, believe it or not, just three weeks from now. And I really like this name, finale, because it represents the true sense of what went down with Jesus in the week that was leading up to Easter. The word finale is actually a musical term. It means an intentionally planned ending versus one that is unexpected. And while Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was certainly a surprise to some, they were absolutely no surprise to Christ. They were planned, weren't they? Very, very planned. And I want to start this series off by talking today about Christ's triumphal entry, as it's often referred to. Christ's entry into Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday. It's really the inaugural event of the final week of Christ's life. And as we read through the triumphal entry today, you've probably heard a sermon on this before. And there's a lot that a person can do with the triumphal entry. You can talk about the nuance and the detail, the prophetic ring that it has to it. But for our purposes here today, I want us to use the discussion about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday to actually launch and initiate our own thought process about how exactly we're preparing our hearts for Easter. How are we preparing our hearts for Easter? How are we preparing our hearts to celebrate the resurrection, the raising from the dead of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who came to live and to die so that we might have life in relationship with him for all of eternity, starting right here, right now. Now, if you're like me, if you're like a whole bunch of people, you probably have not given much thought to preparing your heart for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, right? Right? It's like, yeah, Easter's coming. Life's full, life's busy, we're going 150 miles an hour. But I I compared our interaction, our preparation for Easter with how much energy we expend as a culture to prepare for the birth of Christ. Think about that. To prepare for Christmas. I mean, there's all kinds around Christmas time, there's all kinds of indications before Christmas that something special is coming, that something special is about to happen, right? We hang wreaths and we light candles, we dig a tree out of the crawl space. If you're a real diehard, you go up to the mountains and you actually cut one down and then you trim the tree and then you wrap gifts and then you string lights and you have parties and you give gifts and you sing songs custom made for the season and you drink beverages custom made for the season, something called eggnog, wow, and then something also called wassail, which doesn't sound like a beverage at all, does it? And that's all to celebrate the arrival of the infant son of God, God incarnate, God in a bod, as we like to say, around here. All preparation for Christmas. And then there's Easter, right? What in the world do you do to prepare for Easter? Maybe you dye a few eggs with your kids, or maybe you invite the Easter bunny over to give the kids an Easter basket with that evil green plastic grass inside of it. Maybe you buy one of those new sort of springtime outfits, maybe a formal large brimmed hat for the ladies. You pop a ham in the oven and you're done, ready for Easter, right? But when you think about our preparations for Easter, does any of that really do justice to what is for we who follow Jesus Christ the most important day of the year? After all, Easter is the day we celebrate the central event. It is the central event in all of human history, the day that Jesus rose from the dead for the purpose of making a way for us to live in relationship with him for all of eternity that starts right here and right now. And some of you are going, well, there's the Lent deal, right? That's preparation for Easter, and you're absolutely right. For centuries, as a matter of fact, Christians have prepared for Easter by observing the Lenten season, as it's often called, It's the period that begins on Ash Wednesday and concludes with Easter. Lent is traditionally, as most of you probably know, 40 days long, though different denominations calculate the 40 days a bit differently. Uh, The 40 days actually represents the time that Jesus spent out in the desert before the beginning of his public ministry when he endured temptation at the hands of Satan himself. You all know that in the Lenten tradition, it's a period of repentance, right? We deny ourselves pleasure, commodity, convenience. We give sacrificially. We take on new serving roles. You might forego a meal a day, for example. You might do without meat on Fridays. You might volunteer a day a week at a homeless shelter as an indicator of your repentant spirit. You're preparing your heart all along the way for the celebration of the risen Savior of the world. Easter, a Lent isn't around much anymore, honestly. It was virtually, though universal, in Christendom until the Protestant Reformation. We don't do Lent much anymore, which is probably our loss, isn't it? Sometime we'll do it around here and it'll be healthy for all of us. But in the absence of the Lenten celebration this year, I want to show you three other ways through which we can prepare ourselves effectively and meaningfully for Easter 2010. And we're going to do it by looking at that What went down on that first Sunday, a couple thousand years ago, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the first Palm Sunday. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. You can follow along on the screens. I'm going to read out of a version of the Bible called The Message. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. After saying these things, Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem. When he got near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says anything, asks, what are you doing? Say, his master needs him. The two left and found it just as he said. As they were untying the colt, its owner said, what are you doing untying the colt? It's a great question, isn't it? They said, his master needs him. They brought the colt to Jesus. Then, throwing their coats on its back, they helped Jesus get on. As he rode, the people gave him a grand welcome, throwing their coats on the street. Right at the crest where Mount Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works they had witnessed. Blessed is he who comes, the King in God's name. All's well in heaven, glory in the high places. Some Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, get your disciples under control. But he said, if they kept quiet, the stones would do it for them, shouting praise. When the city came into view, he wept over it. If you had only recognized this day and everything that was good for you, but now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery and surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babes on the pavement. Not one stone will be left intact. All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. The first of three preparatory actions for us this Easter is actually found in the action of two of the disciples, two of Jesus' closest followers, and it's this. Do what Jesus says. Do what Jesus says, right? You see it right there in black and white. After saying these things, Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem. When he got near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says anything, ask, what are you doing? Say, his master needs him. Look what happens. The two left and found it just as he said. As they were untying the colt, its owner said, what are you doing untying the colt? They said, his master needs him. They brought the colt to Jesus. Now, objectively, this is a strange mission that Jesus sends two of his disciples on. Check it out. Go into that village over there and steal me a donkey, right? Steal me a donkey. It's quite odd. Interestingly, the text doesn't choose to tell us which of the two disciples went on the mission to steal the colt. Who do you think it was? Maybe Peter and Andrew? Could it have been James and John? Ah, I've got it. It had, one of them had to have been Judas, right? Right? Had to be Judas and someone. Seems like the perfect mission for the guy who would sell Jesus out. Judas, the betrayer, right? If he's willing to sell Jesus out, he'll certainly steal a dumb donkey. We can speculate, but we don't know who it was, do we? Neither does the Bible choose to tell us what those two talked about on their way to commandeer. Let's stop calling it stealing. Let's call it commandeer the donkey. I imagine if it had been me, I'd have been saying things like, do you think the donkey will really just be there, tied up, kind of waiting for us to come along and take it? Just this random colt that's never been ridden, just standing there. Maybe the other guy said, do you really think we should steal the colt? Like, is that okay? Ah, the other one says, maybe the master knows the owner, and maybe this is just some kind of a test for us. What if the person whose colt it is sees us and, is he going to let us just walk off with his colt? What if the guy doesn't want us taking his colt? What if he like, takes a swing at us? He didn't say anything about what we were supposed to do. The guy swings at us when we're trying to steal his colt. Now, that brings up an interesting point. We have a propensity to read the Bible as if it were a play, don't we? As if all of the characters sort of knew the script that they were walking in, but they, they didn't just like you and i don't know the script of our lives yet these two disciples whoever they were they simply did what jesus told them to do look at john 12:16 his disciple this is uh, uh, speaking to speaking about all of these events the stealing of the colt and so on his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy Now, one of the definitions of the word prophecy is the foretelling of an event long before it ever actually happens. And what John 12, 16 is pointing toward is the prophecy of a guy named Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, which we find in Zechariah 9, 9. You could write that down. Look it up on your own sometime. And you should know that Zechariah spoke those words in roughly the year 500 BC, roughly 500 years prior to all of this, 500 plus years. And these two disciples, they didn't have the context for all of that. They didn't understand everything that was happening. They didn't get it. They didn't know how this was going to turn out. Yet they simply did what Jesus asked them to do. And check out what happened. They brought the coat to Jesus. Then throwing their coats on its back, they helped Jesus get on as he rode the people gave him a grand welcome throwing their coats on the street right at the crest where mount olives begins its descent the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works they had witnessed blessed is he who comes the king in god's name all's well in heaven glory in the high places now you want to talk about a great model for our lives in the weeks leading up to easter Not a single one of us could do any better than to follow the example of these two disciples. Who though they had no idea what the future would hold, what their actions would bring about, they simply obeyed him. They just did what he asked them to do. Now, there are some people around the Gallatin Valley community whose mission in life, I think it is, is to get on me and get on us a round journey, for not being what they call a deep enough church. This is what they say about us, in case you haven't heard. We are not a deep enough church. Uh, They allege that from a basis of the fact that we don't kick people hard enough with their sin. Too much grace, they say about us. They allege that we are, quote, bible light because I choose to read out of the New Living Translation of the Bible and other versions, as a matter of fact, stuff like The Message, and that our notes pages, that thing that you have in front of you, doesn't have enough Bible verses listed out on them. Some of them say we don't exegete enough Greek and talk enough about the background of the text. Shallow church, they cry about us. But we have to ask the question, what exactly does God consider to be deep. What's God's definition of deep? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It's obeying him. It's doing what he asks us to do. And here it is, right from Jesus' own mouth. John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says, obey my commandments. That is the definition of deep. And therefore, that verse is the precise reason why any time I or any of our other teaching pastors stand up here and teach the Bible, that we move from the sacred text, from the Bible, to a place of obedience, to a place of application, from the text to what do I do with the Bible? What do I do with that? From the text to application, from the text to obedience. I had one of these critics sitting in my office some months ago, and he literally said to me, I couldn't believe it, I actually wrote it down. He said, I just want you to talk about God, Brian. Why don't you, when you preach, just talk about God? I want you to just talk about God and stop with all the what-do-I-do-with-it stuff. He literally said that to me. I wrote it down. I I, I was puzzled, to say the least. And I told him, and I'm going to tell you, the reason that I and the reason that we won't stop with all the what do I do with it stuff is because it is not, folks, nearly enough just to know about God. It is not nearly enough to be able to talk prosaically about God, to fill our heads with knowledge about God. It's not even nearly enough to have piles and piles and piles of scripture committed to memory because you see, according to Jesus, a deep Christ follower, therefore a deep church, is about moving and helping and inviting and challenging people at every level of spiritual interest to move from the text, from the Bible, to a place of application, doing, obeying. From the text to obedience from the text to doing what God asks us to do, moment by moment, day by day. You want to be a deep Christ follower? You want people to look on your life and say, wow, that person is a mature, deep Christ follower. Obey him. Obey him. Do what he asks you to do. Now, I'd be willing to bet all of the money in the world that your obedience will not involve a donkey like it did these two disciples. But only you and God know what it will involve, right? Only you and God know what obedience he is asking of you, maybe even right now, today, this week, this Easter season. What, what is it for you? Maybe for you, obedience is repenting, turning to faith in him, giving your heart and life to him, by making the decision to follow Jesus and burning the ships and never going back to the way life was. Maybe he is challenging you to obey him by forgiving someone. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, that one, you know. Maybe obedience for you is putting a serving towel over your arm and serving someone, some ministry. Maybe for you, obedience is putting some behavior, some habit, some attitude down and putting it down for good and turning your back and running and never looking back. Maybe for you, obedience is saying yes to something or someone or no to something or someone. I I can't tell you what it is for you. But whatever it is, would you just do it and do it in preparation in your heart and your life for the celebration of Christ's resurrection? One way to prepare for Easter is to do what Jesus says. The second, number two, is to proclaim who Jesus is. Proclaim who Jesus is. Check out Matthew 21, starting in verse one. This again from the message. When they neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethpage on Mount Olives, Jesus sent his two disciples with these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Bring them to me. The other text, Luke, only talked about one donkey. Here we see Matthew talking about two. Bring them to me. Interesting. If anyone asks what you're doing, say, the master needs them. He will send them, there it is again, plural, with you. This is the full story of what was sketched earlier by the prophet. Now this is Zechariah 9.9 right here. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a pack animal. The disciples went and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and colt out, laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving them a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. This is where we get this uh, title, Palm Sunday, for this day, right? They're probably palm trees. They would have cut the fronds off in this Palm Sunday, throwing the branches down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead and crowds followed, all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in highest heaven. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Check that out. The whole city was shaken. Unnerved, people were asking, what's going on here? Who is this? The parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. And when Matthew reports that the city was shaken, he uses the Greek word from which we get our word seismic, as in seismic event, as in earthquake, right? It's the same word he uses later on in his gospel, Matthew 27, 51. You could write that one down and look it up. He's talking about the time in Matthew 27, 51, the moment that Jesus died on the cross that the whole earth shook, rocks shook. Split, And what Matthew is illuminating, see, is that at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the entire city was shaken in the same way that an earthquake shakes the ground. And honestly, folks, that is the precise same thing that will happen if and when we, every one of us, will simply start to do what Jesus asks us to do. The Gallatin Valley and all of the communities, Bozeman and Belgrade and Three Forks and Manhattan and Churchill and even outside of the Gallatin Valley, into Livingston and Big Sky and West Yellowstone and all the way to Glendive will be shaken. Why? It's because, see, our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and classmates and roommates, they are filled with wonderment about whether or not there really is a God. And they're filled with wonderment about if there is really a God, whether He really does care about them and their life and their problems and their challenges and their hurts, most of all. They're waiting to see if we who claim to be the Church of Jesus Christ, we who sing songs about Him and we sing songs, we who sing songs to Him, we who say that we love Him, if we're really any different from everybody else walking around on the planet. And they want to know, they're filled with wonderment about whether or not this God who we claim, who we say we love, if he can really be trusted, if this faith that we claim to have can really do anything, whether it really matters, whether anything really changes with it. it. They are watching us, folks. They are watching us. And see, if they actually see us doing what Jesus tells us to do, what Jesus says, they'll ask the question. They'll be shaken, and they'll ask the question, what's going on? What is this all about? Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? And on this road, see, to preparing our hearts and lives for the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, Jesus raising from the dead, none of us could do any better than to proclaim with our life and with our words who Jesus is to you. What has he done in you? How has he changed you to tell people, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, roommates, tell anybody? I was with some people not very long ago who spent quite a considerable chunk of time with a bunch of Christ followers from our church, as a matter of fact. And honestly, I'm telling you the truth when I say that these people who shared their story with me, they were not in any way seeking God. They were quite the opposite, actually. They had their preconceptions of everything that Christians were and everything that the church was about. And yet, an amazing thing happened. As they observed, as they were a part of this gathering that many of you were at, you had a transformative effect on their hearts and on their lives. Now, it wasn't immediate. It took them some number of months, as a matter of fact, to work up the courage to walk into those doors for a weekend worship gathering like this. And now, today, those people are actively engaged in pursuing their own relationship with God. Why? Just because a whole bunch of you hung out with them Doing what Jesus asks you to do. And you know what? You had no idea that they were even watching you. You did not have a clue that they were watching you. And yet your lives and your words were loudly proclaiming who Jesus Christ is and everything that he's done in your heart and in your life. I know it is very easy to be timid about proclaiming who Jesus is with people, right? Right? It's a risk. You step out every time you do it, which is why one of the tools that we offer you in that process, it's just one of the many tools, is these weekend worship gatherings. Use them. Use them. Invite someone from your world who you sense is wondering, who is this God? Who is this Jesus? And bring them with you. Bring them with you. If there's stuff About what we do in here, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. If there's stuff about what we do in here that makes the bringing of a guest uncomfortable for you, i got to know about it. You have to tell me. If it's something that we can change, we will change it. Think on who from your world is God nudging you to invite, to be your guest at a weekend worship gathering where they will sense God's love, they will sense his grace, where they will not be condescended toward, they will not be condemned, they will not be shoved upon, they will not be high-pressure sails pitched. It's just one way for you to prepare for this Easter by proclaiming who Jesus is. Number one, do what Jesus says. Number two, proclaim who Jesus is. And the third and final way we're, we'll land here is to feel what Jesus feels. To feel what Jesus feels feels look at Luke 19 starting in verse 28 after saying these things Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem when he got near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives he sent off two of the disciples with instructions go to the village across from you as soon as you enter you'll find a colt tethered one that has never been ridden untie it and bring it if anyone says anything asks what are you doing say his master needs him the two left and found it just as he had said as they were untying the colt its owner said what are you doing untying the colt they said his master needs him he brought the colt to jesus then throwing their coats on its back they coats on its back they helped jesus get on as he rode the people gave him a grand welcome throwing their coats on the street Right at the crest where Mount Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works they had witnessed. Blessed is he who comes, the king in God's name. All's well in heaven, glory in the high places. Some Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, get your disciples under control. But he said, if they kept quiet, the stones would do it for them, shouting praise. When the city, check this out, when the city came into view, it's the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. And he said, if you would only recognize this day and everything that was good for you, but now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery and surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. Not one stone will be left intact. All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. A little something happened on Jesus right into Jerusalem that we don't talk about all too often. Honestly, for the longest time, I missed it entirely, this very small detail, but there it is, and we have a tendency to get all caught up in the crowd, right, and the shouts and the emotion and the excitement. This one almost gets by us unnoticed. I'm not the only one. From what we read in the text, the crowd doesn't even seem to notice this, but let's not let it get by us any longer. When the city came into view, he wept over it. And the Greek word that's translated wept in our Bibles translates into, we're not just talking about crocodile tears here. It's a kind of soul-wrenching, gut-wrenching, teeth-gritting, sobbing that the person does at a funeral or the grave of one who is very, very dear to them. It's the same word that Mary used at the tomb of her brother Lazarus, the same word that Mary Magdalene used at Jesus' tomb, and of Peter himself, bitter weeping after he denied Christ for the third time and heard the rooster crow, remember? Remember? The sight of the city, he wept. Do you get what's going on there? Jesus Christ was utterly broken for the plight of the lost people of Jerusalem. Everyone else is busy having a Jesus is coming to town party. And he himself was filled and broken for the lost sheep of Israel who didn't even know their sad condition. And so for us, there again, a third model for us as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Will you let yourself feel what Jesus feels for people? Will you let your heart be broken for people in your life, for people in your world who are hurting, people who are wandering, people who are searching, for those who don't even know they're searching? And I can't tell you who the people in your world are. God knows and you know too friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and classmates, roommates, all who have yet to experience the love and the forgiveness and the deliverance and the peace and the freedom that can only come when you experience new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And an amazing thing happens. When you invite Jesus to let you feel what he feels, the compassion of God himself will absolutely flood your heart and your life and you will never be the same which is exactly how I want us to conclude this gathering here today. So would you take your stuff, please, and set it aside. I just invite you to get quiet and get still and just get into a posture of prayer and worship and listening to the Lord, if you would. We're talking about three ways today that we can prepare our hearts and lives for the celebration of Christ's resurrection. Number one, we do what he says. Number two, we proclaim who he is. Three, we ask him to let us feel what he feels for people. And when it comes to the third one of those, feeling what he feels, who are the people in your life? who have yet to experience the forgiveness and the deliverance and the peace and the freedom that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Who are they? Would you ask God right now in this moment to bring those people to mind, names, faces. And ask Jesus to let you feel what he feels for them just like he did that day, the first Palm Sunday, when he wept over the people of the city of Jerusalem. Lord, bring those people to mind, please. Bring their names and bring their faces to mind. May we feel what you feel for every single one of them, one by one, by one, by one. May your compassion flood our hearts and our lives. May the brokenness that you feel for them flood our hearts and our lives, God. And as most of you probably know, we're building right now, as a matter of fact, a community center, a ministry campus where eventually we'll get the privilege of meeting as a church. Gatherings just like this one. But you know what's even a bigger deal than that, a place where we meet as a church? You know, we're building that campus and that community center as a gift to the Gallatin Valley community so that the people whose names and faces you're thinking on right now, whose plight your heart is breaking for right now, whose brokenness you're feeling right now might have a chance to experience the forgiveness and the deliverance, and the peace, and the freedom that only comes through a relationship in Jesus Christ. That's why we're doing it. And you know what's true? Every single one of those people who you're thinking about right now matters to God. Matters so much to Him. And because they matter to God, they matter to us as a church. And they matter so much that we actually want to be a part of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ so badly that we actually want them to be a part of that building. And so here's what we're going to do as we close up today. We brought these beams in here from that job site. These beams will in very short order be placed in that building. And we have them here on the stage and I'm going to invite you as you're worshiping as the band is leading as you're feeling what Jesus feels for those folks that you would actually come up here and you would write their names right here on one of these beams that'll go into that building and be strategic about that you might just use initials or first names and as you write their name make that a prayer time over them, over their life. Ask God, plead with God to use anything He can, anything He will, including our ministry campus and community center, to reach them. And so I just invite you, as the Lord leads, as He prompts, as the band is leading, just come on up, grab a pen, write their name on here. We'll be back up in a few moments and wrap us up.